Good morning to you. Always wonderful to be back in the pulpit at Grace Emmanuel. So thank you for your prayers for our time away. We had a great ministry with some dear brothers and sisters across the country. Lovely, lovely time, particularly at Grace Bible Church in Bozeman, Montana, a bit of a mountain environment up there, and it was great. Great time with a dear friend and brother in the ministry, Brian Hughes, just a lovely pastor of many, many years there. He and I have known each other for years, tried to make some connections through the years if we had time, and finally we had an opportunity to do that this time. So thank you for giving my wife and I a little extra day or two to do that. That was wonderful and a great time of teaching some folks up in the mountains at a, at a Christian camp that I've frequented through the years. And the Lord does great things in those environments because the context is a bit eclectic and people are from all over the place. You don't know their background. And I just do what I typically do here. We just get up and chapel in the morning and chapel at night and just launch. And who knows what's going to happen in the mountains. So <laughs> it's just been wonderful. We had, <clears throat> we had lots of opportunities for people to tell us God was doing new works in their hearts. So it was just great the way the Lord used the Word in that way. It's familiar ground for us here, but never casual ground. So take your Bibles if you would, and let's jump back into Luke's Gospel. We're finishing up chapter 13 today. Well, today and next week, we finish chapter 13 in this great section that Luke ends with in this chapter. And this is, of course, in line with everything that He's been recording about Jesus' trek down to Jerusalem. This is massively encouraging because in this final section here of the 13th chapter, we're reminded of particular truths that I read from Romans 11, and we just began to sing about there in that final song, that everything that God does is perfect and cannot be thwarted if it's His purpose to do it. If it's his ultimate will to do it, he's going to accomplish it, and the machinations of mankind and the attempts on the part of earthly-minded people and sinners to thwart God's purposes are foolish. They are foolish. The plan of our great God, conceived in his perfect and holy love, that plan which was conceived before time began, it will be completed. And condemned sinners will be redeemed by that plan in God's mercy. No matter that men have tried to haltingly stop God's purposes, no matter that demons have schemed against it and railed against it time and time again, Satan has many times plotted the ruin of God's saving love. But the heart of God remains to rescue sinners. It is unchanging and irrevocable. The promise of God given to a sin-cursed world in Genesis 3.15 is marching on, and it cannot be stopped. God's sovereign control of all things secures it, secures forever the certainty of it. It is the most securing and thrilling doctrine of all, that God is willing to save, powerful enough to save, merciful enough to save, and no one and nothing in the universe can stop it. The entire universe, in fact, moved toward Jerusalem, and once Jesus hung on the cross and then rose from the dead, everything in God's purposes looks back to Jerusalem and forward to God's great kingdom. Nothing can stop it. God's love and his saving nature 
are the marrow of his redeeming work. It is the DNA, the lifeblood of our great God. And as I read to you at the end of Romans 11, God's glory, his reflection of himself, his perfections, permeating his people, shooting through his people as a reflection for all eternity, that is the divine gravitational pull into which everything is caught up for him, from him, through him, to him, are all things. To him be the glory. Even when our Lord was on the earth and navigating the treacherous circumstances into which he was thrown, he knew that all things were coming to an end. And yet, he never allowed evil to run its own course in its own time. He would say often, my hour has not yet come. It's often in the Gospels that it is recorded, and it must humiliate mankind, but it was recorded that his enemies tried to seize him on a number of occasions. John chapter 7, they were seeking to seize him, strategizing to seize him, but no one laid their hands on him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus had kept it from happening too early and not according to God's sovereign plan. This is the sovereign work of God. The Lord knew it. He orchestrated his own move toward Jerusalem. The most powerful religious institution in the land, the Sanhedrin, the officers of the Sanhedrin couldn't arrest him yet until it was time. According to John's gospel in chapter 8, verse 20, God prevented his arrest in the temple treasury. Jesus at one point disappeared in their midst. It wasn't time. Jesus escaped again, John's gospel records in chapter 10, and avoids an early arrest again in chapter 11. When would it be time? When would it be time? Well, in the garden when he had been praying and then he had finally succumbed and said, not my will but yours be done, John 18 records that Jesus, therefore, knowing all things were coming upon him and every detail of it, he went forth. He walked toward the guards, disciples in tow, and said, whom do you seek? He was orchestrating the timing of the entire event. And Jesus headed into the final weeks of his life driven by this great plan, this great love. He was focused on saving. He was focused on serving his heavenly Father. He was focused on preaching about it. He was focused on warning sinners to urgently call upon God. And we have seen that in these last two chapters of Luke's gospel. It has been relentless. Chapter 12, verse 35 and following, it said, live in a state of readiness. Luke records that chapter 12, verse 41 and following, that we are to be found faithful. Be careful when the master comes. You don't know the hour. You better be on the things of redemption. You better know Christ. In chapter 12, verse 49, Jesus says he is lighting a fire and drawing a line in the proverbial sand in the universe, and it's going to separate families, those that believe the gospel and those that hate the gospel. In chapter 12, 54 and following, the time was urgent. Count the cost, he said. When you see human tragedy and human suffering, Jesus says in chapter 13, verse 1 and following, that that's compelling evangelism. Anytime you see some human suffering, it ought to make you take stock that you could likewise perish and not know when, and you need to know the Lord. Don't follow, he says, the hypocrisy of Israel, chapter 13, verse 6 and following. 
And don't underestimate the way the kingdom starts and continues on. And just because you don't think it's a massive empire and a powerful thing, don't imagine that it's not growing, he said in chapter 13, verses 18 and following. Don't underestimate it. It'll come. It's coming. It's growing. One heart at a time. One soul at a time. It is happening, and it will be powerful, and it will be global. Only the pride of humanity underestimates the work of God or imagines they can thwart it. And then he said in chapter 13, verse 22 and following, the door is narrow and the proud are excluded. You better strive to see it. You better think about the gospel. You better not take a casual approach. Everything up to this point is a focus on this great work of redemption. Jesus is driving it. God's sovereignty is working it out. And human beings try as they might to get in the way. And they are fools, blind fools. And that is where we find ourselves in this final section of chapter 13. Let me read from verse 31 to the end of the chapter. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, go away and leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, you go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is an amazing thing that Jesus says to some Pharisees. Despite the sovereign plans of God for the redemption of sinners, People, even at that time, just like they do today, were simply refusing to respond to the truth and actually imagine that they can defy God, that they can cheat reality, that they can make their own way and even silence the truth. But just as God's purposes can't be thwarted by anything or anyone in His creation, He is a saving God, unstoppably saving. He is a lavish God in His mercy, unstoppably merciful. He is inconceivable in His patience. And His constant call to sinners will not be silenced until every soul who will ever be redeemed is safely in the fold. And so you can look around the globe and you can see the unbelief of untold millions, the schemes of men trying to shut out the truth, the plotting of the enemies of the cross against Christ and His people across the globe. God says, and Jesus repeats right here, they are all vain efforts, powerless plots, Empty conspiracies, all of them. And the way it unfolds here is most remarkable. 
Notice verse 31, the empty schemes of men. If you're keeping a little outline, there's some structure for you. The empty schemes of men, verse 31. Just at that time, some Pharisees came up saying to him, get away and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you. Now, you know already, if you've been in the study of the Gospels, that wherever the Pharisees are mentioned as being among those who are following Jesus' ministry around the countryside, we know they're up to no good. We know that. They have hated Jesus nearly from the first days of his ministry, and they've been scheming, and they've been plotting to get rid of him any way they can. Whether they could trap him in a conflict with the law to discredit him, or whether they can find him guilty of transgressing the law in a serious enough way to warrant stoning, that's what they wanted to do. They tried to find some liars that would make false charges, and eventually that even factored in in his mock trial. They tried to get some seedy characters from time to time in low places to seize Jesus, no doubt to drag him into some hidden back alley of some city and then take him out, never to be heard from again. Whether they can get him to Rome so that they can portray him as some sort of insurrectionist, a political threat to the empire, or whether they can incite some big enough mob against him who will rush him to his death, it doesn't matter how they accomplish it, they've always plotted to get Jesus in a position where they can make it their move and end him once and for all even if they have to use some no-account, much-hated puppet king to sort of manipulate Jesus into their traps. And that is precisely what is happening here. When you first read verse 31, some would imagine that, he's being war- that Jesus is being warned by the Pharisees about a king that wants to kill him. Why would the Pharisees be doing that? Are these guys like Nicodemus, curious and interested, maybe even later softening in their hearts to be saved? I don't think so. Now, Herod is mentioned here. They mention here that Herod wants to kill you. Herod, as you know, is Herod Antipas. He's the son of the great Herod, great King Herod. Upon his father's death, around 4 BC, Antipas was given rule over two regions, Galilee and Perea, which are north of the Judean wilderness. And the Jews, the Pharisees particularly here, have no love for Herod, and he has no love for them. The Jews hated Antipas. He isn't Jewish. At one point, he built his tribute city, Tiberias, a city, by the way, which Jesus never went to that we know of, yet it was around the Sea of Galilee. It's interesting that that was Herod's tribute city, and he built it over Jewish sacred ground, a cemetery, no less. He provoked Israel constantly, particularly in that city, by the accommodation of idols As you know, he carried on a scandalous affair with his brother's wife, Herodias. You remember that John the Baptist confronted them on that out in public, and Herodias hated John the Baptist for it, and in an attempt to get back at him, she, she orchestrated it for her daughter to make some seductive dance in front of Herod Antipas and manipulated his lust to get him to agree to give her what she wanted, at which point she requested, of course, the head of John the Baptist, and you know the rest. There is some speculation as to why Herod was telling the Pharisees that he wanted Jesus dead because it doesn't seem when you think about Herod that that he was all that aggressive in this. Matthew 14, 9 says he was even grieved to have to kill John the Baptist having made that 
that foolish agreement. And Luke 23 indicates that at Jesus' trial, when Jesus was paraded in front of Herod, Herod liked the idea that he was paraded in front of him because he had, the text says he had wanted for a long time to see Jesus and get him to do some miracle in front of him. Herod was just a pagan outright. He was curious and fascinated by Jesus, not necessarily aggressive in wanting him dead, even though, as we'll see, I'm assuming here that at some point the Pharisees are telling the truth. He just as well see the guy die if he's going to be a threat to his empire. But he's not the aggressor in it, I don't think. He's not the ultimate aggressor in what the Pharisees say here. Somehow the Pharisees knew that Herod was likely uncomfortable with Jesus in his region. He's in Galilee and Perea. He's actually in Perea heading south. And perhaps Herod was nervous that the disciples of John the Baptist, having, having been bereft now of their leader, might might do something against Herod, start a movement around Jesus, this cousin of John the Baptist. Or perhaps he was fearful that Jesus' miracle power might be brought down upon his head at some point. Either way, the Pharisees are using him. Pharisees would like to get as many authorities involved in their plotting as they could. They'd heard enough of Herod's nervous twitches, his nervous comments about having Jesus removed from the scene or at least get him out of his land that no doubt they worked behind the scenes to make Jesus out to be some sort of political threat to Herod, and there was talk about getting rid of him. That was enough. That was all the Pharisees needed to come directly to Jesus and sort of help the situation along to get what they wanted out of the deal. So they're saying something about Herod. He wants to kill you. But these are fools pretending to care. They do not care. Go away and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. You know what's behind their mask? They want to get Jesus to move quickly to Jerusalem, where they can have all the power of the Sanhedrin come down upon him. They'd heard enough on the countryside, but they can't, they can't get anything done. They can't seize him. He seems to escape them. There are people and followers everywhere that continue to shuffle the Pharisees away from Jesus' path. In Galilee and Perea, he's too popular. They just can't plot and get things done. In fact, I'm sure they plotted a hundred times a day, but the secrets were divulged by followers of Christ who were spies in the region to keep the Lord's ministry safe, God's people. No doubt that happened all the time. And so they just couldn't get any traction. They needed him out of Perea. They needed him out of the Galilean region and down to Jerusalem where they could see him face off with the Sanhedrin so they could end his life. The bottom line is they think they're in control. They think they're in control of this whole thing. Look at 1 Corinthians 3 for a moment. This is what makes this so utterly foolish. 1 Corinthians 3, just to remind us of what the Apostle Paul penned about anyone who would come against the purposes of God. 1. Notice verse 18. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. Why? Because it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Likely a quote from Job 5. And again, it is written, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless, quoting the psalmist, Psalm 94. 
He is the one who catches the the wise in their craftiness. He's the one who lets the wise set the trap and then comes along and pulls the rug out from underneath them. God knows your plans. He knows your plots against the gospel. He knows the unbelief of the pagan. He knows the back alley deals that are being cut. He sees them all, knows them all, and by the way, is sovereign over all of them, orchestrating all of them. The greatest evil act ever perpetrated on the earth was the murder of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and yet Acts tells us in Peter's great sermon that it was done according to the foreknowledge and predestined plan of God. Evil people doing evil things on their own, according to their own motives, their own will, and yet it is all mysteriously, unfathomably under the purpose of God and his sovereign plan. No one can thwart this. How foolish then for Pharisees to come along and in a pretense say, hey, by the way, you need to get out of Perea and Galilee because Herod wants to kill you. What, God doesn't know that that they are crafting something here? God doesn't know the reasonings of the wise here? Useless And so Jesus exposes their folly. What you have here is fools pretending to care, and Jesus exposes their foolishness immediately. Go back to Luke 13. Notice Jesus' response. He said to them, you go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. I love this response. I mean, you read that, and some of you animal lovers might be thinking, oh, Fox, how cute. He's wonderful, you know. That is not how this is portrayed here by the Lord Jesus Christ, nor is it how you ought to think of it. He is exposing Herod's character. Tell that fox. It is a highly derisive term, a derogatory term that represented what everyone in that day knew a fox was all about. They were vermin. They were filthy vermin. Cunning, yes, yet still vermin. And Jesus uses the word to illustrate what he thinks. Think about that. What the Lord of glory thinks of Herod. You're contemptible and you're worthy of extermination. Think about that. He is gracious to Pharisees. He is at times so thrillingly gracious to some of the most vile sinners. And yet with regard to Herod... Nothing. Wow, that's, I mean, think about it. Jesus spoke to Caiaphas, the high priest, one of the most notorious hypocrites in the land, the high priest of Israel. Jesus spoke to him, gave him truth about who he was. Jesus spoke to the guards in the garden, in front of the disciples, gave them truth about who he was. He healed a guard after a skirmish He even spoke to Pilate when Pilate was the cynic, the ultimate pagan cynic. Oh, what is truth, Jesus? Jesus was merciful even to him. You would have no power over me if it hadn't been given to you from heaven. What a gracious thing to say to Pilate, this pagan procurator. He had spoken to women in the crowd. He had given mercy to so many. But you remember what happened during his trial? They stuck him in front of Herod. Herod talked to him, asked him questions, wanted him to perform a miracle. Jesus said nothing to him. You know why? Because of what you see Jesus saying here. He sees Herod 
as contemptible and worthy of extermination. He may be cunning, but he's still nothing but vermin. You tell that worthy of extermination vermin, that filthy, cunning animal. You tell him. Tell him what? That his rule is powerless. Notice, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures. Today and tomorrow and the third day I reach my goal. It's not intended as a literal accounting of the next few days because he didn't die in the next few days. This is shorthand. Some might call it a colloquial phrase. It's shorthand for saying, look, I'm on my own particular schedule that will end only when it is the right time. You have no power. Oh, you send the Pharisees, you guys connive together. Your reasonings are useless. My schedule is mine. It is the Father's. We rule whether I'm going to die and when I'm going to die and how I'm going to die. Not you. Not you. You go back and you tell Herod that despite his and your scheme to try to get me to Jerusalem immediately so you can get what you want, my death, I am continuing my trek in that direction and I will not be deterred from accomplishing what I've been given to do and when I've accomplished what I've been given to do, my mission will come to an end on my timetable. This is an unequivocal declaration of the sovereign rule of God. And remember who he's sending a message back to? A king. Herod Antipas, the king of that region, Galilee and Perea. A prideful pseudo-king. A human emperor. A human king. Listen, beloved, we fear so quickly and easily human Rulers, do we not? Christians choke in giving the gospel on a talk show. We choke when a a direct question is asked about some culture war and controversy. We do not believe God that he is the ruler over these kings. We see massive empires and we fear And yet, nevertheless, Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like channels of water. He directs it wherever he wishes. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like channels of water. He turns it wherever he wants. You know, I don't know about you, but that, that is both unnerving and comforting. It's unnerving in the sense that all of my free moral actions are still mysteriously and unfathomably under the absolute sovereign and meticulous rule of Almighty God. That's unnerving. That is unnerving. Unless I'm in Christ and have an advocate, I'm unnerved by that. And because I'm a fallen creature, I know innately that I deserve nothing but judgment. A holy God must judge. He must punish. He must send away from Him forever those that never match up, that never measure up, that have fallen short of His glory. He must have in His presence all that reflects His glory perfectly. He must have it. And if there are those who will reject Him, He cannot let a sinning soul go unpunished. So if I am in His presence without an advocate, the sovereign power of God is unnerving. 
No earthly power can stop him. We haven't even seen the most frightening earthly power yet to emerge, that of the Antichrist. It is coming. Just read the prophecy at the end of your copy of the Scriptures. There is a supernatural, supernaturally inspired, demonically inspired ruler coming. And there is indication in the book of Revelation that he will even defy death and deceive the entire world with the exception of God's people, the elect. That is power. That's a powerful empire. And yet, the scriptures teach in that very same prophecy that he is unable to thwart God's sovereign purpose. He's nothing. Jesus Christ shows up. His very word just slaughters them all in a moment. An amassed army done for. This is nothing to God. Why? Because the king's heart is like channels of water in his hand. He turns it wherever he wishes. He said it to Pilate. You think you have power over me? Don't you know I have the power to have you crucified? You have no power over me unless it's given to you from above. Man plans his way, Proverbs 16:9, but the Lord directs his steps. So it is both an unnerving truth and the most comforting truth of all for a Christian. Each strand of sorrow has a place within this tapestry of grace. So through the trial, I choose to say, your perfect will in your perfect way, right? Why are we so quick to fall into the same foolish trap as a pagan king and a bunch of Pharisees around him? Notice what Jesus embeds into this clear statement of his sovereignty. Notice, number one, he says here that he cures. He he casts out demons and performs cures. What is he saying? First of all, I have power over all supernatural forces. All supernatural forces in the universe. You're a human king. I rule demons whom you can't even see and can't do anything about. There's no history of any political king, either in Israel or otherwise, who could stop evil forces from possessing people and troubling their lives. Only Jesus came and would be able to cast out demons, and then the apostles who were given that great power, and a few associates of the apostles, relatively speaking. That's it. That's it. I have power over all supernatural forces. You're a human king. You're going to try to get me to Jerusalem early and have me killed early? Are you kidding? Furthermore, I have power over all disease and death. Have you been able to solve disease and death, Herod? Have you been able to solve the problem of evil spirits ruling whole cultures under your rule? No, but I have. And he says, I'm doing this today and tomorrow. And the third day, I'll reach my goal. In other words, as I said, I have a scheduled mission which nothing can thwart, especially not the the useless scheming of some earthly excuse for a king. You thwart nothing. And he says, I am going to finish my mission. Notice I I will reach my goal. It's a wonderful um, and, and probably too short a translation on this original, this term. This is basically the term for fulfillment, complete completing um, the end, the ultimate end. 
And so Jesus is essentially saying, until I am perfected or completed, until I am brought to fulfillment, it's a passive verb, until, I, until this is the completion of my mission, I'm on it, and it will have a completion, but it'll happen in my timing, and it will be brought to perfect completion. He's obviously speaking, none other, uh, speaking about none other than his finished work on the cross and his resurrection to prove its veracity. Look over for a moment at John chapter 10. You want a commentary on what Jesus is saying here to Herod and the Pharisees, you know John 10, such a rich section. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. (laughs) Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Notice the verb, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have some other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will hear my voice. They will become one flock with one shepherd. There it is. Isn't it interesting? The sovereign work of God in salvation. He was talking to a crowd of people that had come to him. He said, God is sovereign over the fact that you're my sheep because you've heard my voice and there are still some yet to come and they will come. There is absolutely no guesswork here. There's absolutely no human will that can make this happen. No human strength that can make it happen. It is God drawing. It is God moving. He's absolutely sovereign. And there are some who aren't part of this fold yet, and they will come. Notice verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life in order that I may take it again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. This is the personal connection showing His equality with His Father. This is the commandment I received from my Father. This is a personal relationship we have. Whatever He's doing, I'm doing. Whatever you see me doing, you know that He's doing. He'd said that in John 5. I and the Father are doing the same work. You saw me heal on a Sabbath? Just know, if I heal somebody on the Sabbath, it's because the Father, the one you claim to worship, is also healing on the Sabbath because I always do only what my Father wants. He works, I work. I work, He's working. And so if I lay my life down, it's by the Father's ultimate purposes, it's by my will, because I am the Son of God, Nothing's going to deter Jesus from his mission of saving sinners. And I love, just for a moment, Philippians chapter 2, the way that this is expressed theologically. Notice Philippians 2, verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. You say, yeah, I know, in his incarnation, he humbled himself. No, 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 no. Yes, he humbled himself in his incarnation, which was the beginning of the circle to which he would, which he would travel back to the glorious exaltation in heaven. Notice, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. He took himself to his death. He took himself to his cross. He did it. And so you see the empty schemes of man. They're nothing. 
Back to Luke 13. Jesus doesn't stop there. He then makes a profound and very ironic statement about the ugly history of Israel. He had just said, I'm going to do these things today and tomorrow, and the third day I will fulfill everything. It will be fulfilled. I'll reach my fulfillment. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. This is a stinging and very ironic statement to say to the Pharisee. It cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. What is he saying? He's saying, look, my schedule, this schedule that I said that is controlled by me and controlled by the Father, it isn't going to end here in Perea because Israel's history proves that its prophets, of which I'm the greatest, never die outside of Jerusalem. They always die giving light to their own people. You guys want me to go to Jerusalem really quick? Well, I'm headed there on my schedule, but when I get there, it'll be exactly as it's always been with you people. As it's always been. You kill the messengers of the truth. What a statement that this greatest of prophets is going to Jerusalem by the purposes and plan of God, yet Israel and her ugly history is always killing the ones that come and say, won't you believe, won't you trust Every merciful expression, the hand is slapped away. Every message of forgiveness, it is muted. Every prophet that brings it, killed. 1 Thessalonians 2 says they both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They're not pleasing to God. They're hostile to all men. They hinder us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. And the, He says Israel was always filling up the measure of their sins. He's not talking about every Israelite. I read to you in Romans 11, Paul's an Israelite. He got saved. The first 3,000 converts in Peter's sermon were Jews. God is saving his people. There's a remnant who haven't bowed the knee. But at this particular moment, Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, I will go to Jerusalem, but I'm on a schedule. I'm not going to die here in Perea. And you, you've schemed to have you and Herod sort of get me to Jerusalem faster. I'm not going there faster, but I will get there. And you know why I'm going to get there? Because you're going to be just like your forebears. Every single time we sent them the mercy of Almighty God, what did they do? They killed them. In fact, notice the next statement. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. That's what you do. That's what you do. Amazing history of Israel. Zechariah murdered by Joash. Isaiah killed in the reign of Manasseh. Prophets stoned and murdered. It's interesting that even the high priest Caiaphas, in his own blindness, in an argument about Jesus and whether or not they should get rid of him because the whole world is following after him and Israel's going to lose their nation and their place. John 11 records that Caiaphas said to the rest of the Sanhedrin, you guys are ignorant. Look, you keep quibbling about whether we should take him out. We should take him out. You know why? Because it's expedient for one guy to die so that we don't lose our place in our nation. And even out of his own mouth, John records that that was a prophecy in a pagan's mouth a high priest's mouth, a prophecy about the fact that one man would die for the nation. 
Same irony here. Jesus says, you want me to go to Jerusalem? I'll get there. I'm on my schedule. But when I get there, is it really going to be any different than it's always ever been with you? You're going to kill me according to the sovereign plan of God, but it'll be your hatred that does it. Because your history has been that. I send you mercy and forgiveness, and all you ever do is just choke on it. The patience of God is staggering. And they were all guilty. Peter affirmed their guilt in his sermon in Acts 2. Men of Israel, this is Jesus whom you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men. They were godless. John MacArthur in his book, The Murder of Jesus, says this. This murder of Jesus was a vast conspiracy involving Rome, Herod, the Gentiles, the Jewish Sanhedrin, and the people of Israel. Diverse groups who, apart from this event, were seldom fully in accord with one another. In fact, it is significant that the crucifixion of Christ is the only historical event where all those factions work together to achieve a common goal. All were culpable, all bear the guilt together. The Jews as a race were no more or less blameworthy than the Gentiles. And I would add that we're not excluded. Because had we been standing there, we would have yelled, crucify him. Why? Because we're sinners just like they, full of pride. I want to admit that I need him. I want to admit that he's Lord and master of all souls. I want to, I want to be the captain of my own soul. I want to, him to admit that I'm good enough. I want God to be the kind of God that accepts me for who I am. Demanding perfection? Why would God demand perfection? I'm trying. The good does outweigh the bad, doesn't it? Why does God have to have such a high standard, absolute perfection, to live in his presence? Who is he to, to require that? We would have said the same thing. So it was us that nailed him to the cross. It was every sinner who will ever believe. That's what made the cross necessary. It's what drove Jesus, the saving mercy of Jesus, with your and my name in his mind and heart. If you're here today and you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, your and my name in his heart while he was driven to Jerusalem on his time schedule, but nonetheless it would be fulfilled. While he was headed there, we were on his heart, in his heart. Why? Because it had been that way before the world began we were predestined in his heart and mind. His love and mercy were fixed on us before we were even born. Nothing could stop your salvation. How did it come? By someone sharing the gospel with you because how shall they hear without a preacher? Somebody has to share the gospel with you. But I'll tell you this, you, if you are in the fixed heart of Almighty God, you cannot be thwarted. All day long, he reaches out with mercy. What will you do with him? What will you do with his message of mercy all day long? He is so patient. The cross, MacArthur said, is therefore the ultimate proof of the utter sovereignty of God. His purposes are always fulfilled in spite of the evil intentions of sinners. God even works his righteousness through the evil acts of unrighteous agents. Far from making him culpable for their evil, this demonstrates how all he does is good and how he's able to work all things together for good, Romans 8, 28. Even the most wicked deed the powers of evil have ever conspired to carry out. That's right. 
Listen, beloved, you do not have to fear. If you're in Christ, it's an unnerving reality that he's sovereign and meticulous and knows every heart and every scheme and every thought, but it's also the most comforting reality because you have been in Christ. You have an advocate. You have responded to his mercy by his kind graces. You have a basis for thanksgiving that is that transcends normal human gratitude. You, you see a cross work on your behalf. You see a Savior driven to that cross to save His people. You see Him resurrected and at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. This is, as the song said, the perfect wisdom of our God revealed in all the universe. All things created by His hand and held together at His command. He knows the mysteries of the seas. The secrets of the stars are His, and He guides the planets on their way and turns the earth through another day. Every single day, He's driven as a saving God to this great redeeming plan. No wonder that the songwriter wrote, Oh, grant me wisdom from above to pray for peace and to cling to love. And teach me humbly to receive the sun and the rain of your sovereignty. In other words, the trials and the times between the trials. Teach me to humbly receive them. Why? Because each strand of affliction and sorrow has a place within this tapestry of grace. It's not just that he's going to take your pain of life and make it into something good. It's that he's going to accomplish redeeming things through it. More gospel opportunity, more souls saved. Jesus knew that. And so, the Pharisees scheming, Herod plotting, trying to say he rules, has authority. The evil around Jesus at the time acting as though it can thwart the plan. Satan behind it all trying to get Jesus out of God's trajectory. Satan wanted Jesus dead, but Satan already knew and was theologically correct about the the prophets and what they'd said about his death, that he would hang on a tree <clears throat> and he would be the substitute. Satan already knew that. <clears throat> and so he wanted to stop it. And he could not. This is the perfect will of God in his perfect way. Unnerving, yes. Comforting, richly. What's the implication? Hey, you should be the blessed feet of those who bring good news. You should always know that souls are saved by the grace, the sovereign grace of God through the instrumentation of you sharing Christ, proclaiming Christ. And you should know that nothing can thwart His purposes. And you should know that everything He does is perfect wisdom. And you should know that whatever you think about the evil of the world, whatever you think about its encroaching empires, they're powerless ultimately. And God will give some of them over like He give, gave Herod over. And He will grant mercy to people we wouldn't expect He would grant mercy to. And that's a reminder of ourselves, isn't it? When sometimes I look at somebody and say, oh boy, I don't know that God would ever save them. Then my mind immediately goes to, what am I saying? Look at me. 
I'm a pathetic example, and yet the richest expression of God's grace. Didn't Paul say the same thing at the end of his life? He said, God saved me so that I'd be an example of his mercy upon the worst of sinners. Yeah. These are the implications. So, beloved, don't forget that in the grace of God, there is this great sovereign power. God's saving love cannot be hindered. What is the heart of God behind it? We're going to have to wait till next time for verses 34 and 35. But Jesus demonstrates a level of grace and kindness and mercy expressed through, through his lips, representing the heart of the Father that is absolutely humbling. It ought to bring us to tears. Bow with me.